Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a brand new interview with one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. This episode gives us a glimpse behind the scenes of director James Mangold's new film, Logan. The follow-up to Mr. Mangold's 2013 feature, The Wolverine, this film takes us into the future, where former X-Man Logan cares for his ailing friend Charles Xavier, the psychic mutant known as Professor X. Together, they live out their days in a self-imposed exile on the Mexican border. Aging and racked with pain from adamantium poisoning, Logan would like nothing better than to be left alone. But when a young mutant arrives pursued by a villain connected to Logan's past, the Wolverine must rise again to protect an innocent. In addition to Logan and the Wolverine, some of Mr. Mangold's credits include the feature films Girl Interrupted, 310 to Yuma, and Walk the Line. Mr. Mangold won a special jury recognition for directing and was nominated for the Grand Jury Prize for his 1995 feature Heavy at the Sundance Film Festival. After a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Mangold spoke with fellow director Gavin O'Connor about making Logan. During their conversation, Mr. Mangold discusses the necessity of creating action scenes that also show character development, the unexpected benefits of shooting an R-rated comic book movie, and how he thinks of Logan as a really bloody version of Little Miss Sunshine. Hey everybody, I've never done this before. So uh, I'm just going to approach this like we'll talk. We'll just talk. We're friends yeah. and we know each other. And yeah. but I but I I, I do want to say that um, I haven't seen the film until today, and I haven't read anything about it because I wanted to I wanted to be a virgin. And um, when <laughs> I when I saw Jim outside, I got to tell you, man, I am floored. I, I'm I, like I'm floored by that movie. That like when you talk about transcending the genre, that is so what what you did is really fucking hard. So I just want to commend you for what you put up on that thank screen. Thank you, that's very kind, but thank you. It's a beautiful movie. I, I just want to say one other thing. I remember in 1980, I, I went to see Raging Bull. And uh, I was in high school, and, um, and I left that film, and I was, I was floored. And I started reading about Scorsese, and I remember he said, uh, in an interview, he said he made that movie as if he had nothing to lose. And I'm when I was watching this film, and I'm curious to ask you, did you make this movie as if you had nothing to lose, or did you make this movie as if you had everything to lose? Uh, I always, well, I, I guess my own version of that in my head is I make every movie like it's the last one. <laughs> So that anyone will let me make. So the the most frightening thing to me is if my last movie were some obvious payday empty object. So that would be kind of the that's like the great fear would be the um uh but uh but it is it is we put a lot into this, but I think that interestingly, this was an easier movie than some other movies I've made as a kind of personal experience. The, uh, 
I think a lot of a lot of what I love when I because when I watch the movie and you know we just finished it literally two and a half three weeks ago we wrapped in August so this is kind of a amazing journey getting the movie here um, now um, to for this date. But when I watch it, what I feel is, you know, I've known Hugh Jackman for almost 20 years now, and um, we've made, this is the third movie we've made together. Um, A lot of the people um, behind the camera have made many movies with me. And um, what I, what moves me also about this project was just that it was a kind of moment that I felt like I had figured things out and um, and had uh, personalities around me I mean, as you well know, um, so much of your time as a director can be spent not making a movie, but just trying to create peace or or psychological space with which a movie could be made. And um, when I actually wake up in the morning and I'm not worried about what bomb I have to defuse on the set, And I'm actually just coming to the set to make the movie. And my biggest worry is, will lightning strikes interrupt us in the woods or uh, Daphne's child hours or normal, good, wholesome worries about uh, making a movie and not the kind where where your kind of your ability to dream is robbed from you as a director because you're doing this other kind of, uh, you know, plates on sticks kind of Carson thing that, um, that is not... That isn't making movies, really. So then let's go back to the beginning. How did you... I mean, because when you watch this film, you go, okay, this is a singular vision. This is a film that doesn't feel like... You can watch the... Let's be honest. You, well, I'll speak for myself. When I, I, I go to these films, um, my, my daughter's a big Marvel fan. I go to a lot of these movies, and um, as she likes a joke, I fall asleep very often during them. Even at times during the big bloated action sequences, I'm just... Because I just find them to be empty and disposable and about nothing, and they make me... They're like soporific, even though they're loud. So when I looked at... When I watched this film, I mean... It's it's everything. It's like the holy grail of movie making, because a artistically, it's it's such a singular vision, which it doesn't feel like there was any studio interference. That's how it feels for me as a filmmaker. And then you get the. Well, that's how it felt. It felt for me like I got to make, like it's no less my movie than heavy. For those of you who followed me for a while, that that the the thank you um, that that I really never had. I mean, there's not a single thing I was asked to take out. Um, there was no, there was like, literally, I felt like this, this is a hundred percent my movie scored the way I wanted scored, cut the way I wanted it cut the effects I wanted where I wanted them. Um, the, it's a synthesis of all different things I care about. And first of all, so you're not out on a ledge alone. And I wouldn't just say Marvel movies. I would just say tentpole movies. We, I do agree. And it was a very driving, I mean, we can talk about the story and coming up with the script for the movie um and we can talk about kind of on the directorial side all my decision making processes were about not about making a movie that didn't have action or not making a movie that didn't have loud moments or violence because clearly I did but the but but about that exact anxiety um which is that I and actually exactly the same physiological response I've had in the movies which is that they're sh- blowing up and exploding and soundtrack and Dolby Atmos up the wazoo and my eyes are rolling up in my head. 
And I'm like, it's like, I kind of feel like Malcolm McDowell and Clockwork Orange, or I kind of feel like, I don't know what's going on, but I do not care. And my system is shutting down because it's like, it's kind of the, the only thing I remember was like, is that when you went over to a friend's house and you're younger and they thought this album was so great and they played it really loud and it's terrible. <laughs> and, and you're just listening to this album and you're trying, they want it really loud. And so it is, but it's just, there's nothing speaking to you on this record. And um, so how, so the, so walk us through how this how, how do you sit down with a studio to take to do this movie obviously do the previous one and 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 walk them through a I'm curious about the idea of the movie the execution of the script how that even just getting and then I'm curious about what was in the script and then what actually ended up on screen right God how much time do we have the uh, <laughs> the uh, I'll try and do the short, and if anyone knows me or has heard me speak before, that's a very struggle for me is to be short. The um, the quick version of it would be uh, we finished The Wolverine, um, the kind of Japanese saga, which was um, a marvelous experience for me on many levels, but I felt some some things in this movie are a bit of a reaction to that movie as well as um, other other uh, X-Men films, But the and I can get into that, but the... But the main was that um, they came to me and asked me, and Hugh and I were talking as we ended the last one about what the next one would be and if there was a next one. And both of us were pretty resolved that there was no reason to make another one if it somehow wasn't worth it for each of us creatively. And um, from my point of view, um, it, that's really about about having something that challenges you and 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 reaches deep in some way and I was having these same feelings Gavin was describing watching these movies generally and I'd felt I don't know if you remember when the Wolverine came out it was kind of at the end of a summer we were a late release as opposed to this time we we're like the first kind of big summer movie but the um, and I felt that in the audiences coming to us that they had already been Thored and Supermaned and, and transformed and, and then I had this little, uh, the funny experience I had was I had this movie that the most, the parts that were most exciting for me to work on were the kind of the samurai meets Ozu journey of this kind of character in Japan. For those of you who don't know, I made this movie that took place. It's kind of a famous comic, Frank Miller comic, Japanese saga about Wolverine. And and then we got to the end, and it was a kind of a big finish, kind of a big compete with Marvel finish in the third act. And interestingly, at the end of that year, that was like the the thing that the studio probably had thought would be the most appealing to the fans. You felt was actually the thing that was most uh, disengaging, and that the first two thirds of the movie that the studio was probably most worried. I thought I was making a Warcon Y movie with Wolverine, and they were like, "When is this thing going to get on track? And we'll have a big giant robot." And the that the um, that was actually the part that was playing most. So that that was in my head that sense of of how can I how could I try to come closer to completing the loop with what felt more interesting to me. But the other thing was just. I even felt encumbered. I wanted to escape even more from what was going on. Part of it was that after the Wolverine, I was going to make a Travis McGee movie with Christian Bale, and we were we were literally ten days from shooting when um, doctors said he couldn't work. He had tore his ACL, and we couldn't. The whole movie was shut down. So then another thing that kind of happened was that all this energy I had to make a kind of 
noir, weird, terse uh, detective movie, and all my ambition to escape from the Marvel pressures, I think got all dumped in this movie too. Um, But had you written the the script when you started? Before I started Travis, I already written an outline for like I had this basic idea I pitched to the studio right a month or two after we finished press on the last wolverine which was effectively a really bloody little miss sunshine um with with charles having like alzheimer's and logan caring for him and that they're on the run and that uh x23 comes to their doorstep um and it becomes a kind of chase road picture um a lot of other movies were in my head but the idea of taking these characters um, and putting them in really mundane circumstances along the way um, and kind of just jammed in a car and anything to avoid what I thought was this kind of, for me and my own taste, and it's not everybody's, but was like kind of this Vegasy gloss that all these movies had in mass that I just did not want to be part of again like that and so part of that is isn't just telling your production designer i want it grittier or put more dust on it it's constructing from the ground up in the story a story that's going to resist the functioning impulses that kind of drive everything else in one of these movies if that rambling answer makes any sense so what so so you guys write the script you co- you co-wrote the script right well i, I wrote 60 pages which is just the both the story, the story. Right. and then Michael came on, and then Scott and I came on. Um, when Tra- Michael came on to do a draft while I was making Travis, <laughs> I, that ended up being a whopping month because I just basically wrapped sets and came home from Puerto Rico without a movie. And then um, Scott Frank and I, as a team, um, wrote, uh, and we hadn't even gotten to an end yet uh, on the movie. Um, the biggest writing on this movie happened one year ago now. Um, like just, it's just. December, January, February, March. March is when we kind of handed the studio a script that actually worked from beginning to end. I mean, the real answer to your question is huge props has to go to the people that run Fox um, because they basically elected that they trusted Hugh, they trusted me, they trusted the producers on the picture, Hutch Parker, Simon Kinberg, um, and they just believed that we weren't going to make a mess. And that, um, and they really... Um, we also insisted, I was really insistent that I wanted to rate it our film um, um, from the beginning. But, but interestingly, not just because I wanted to have blue language or, or blood. Um, I, you know, at this point I've made a good number of movies and you just realize these kind of weird, parcheesy ways that our world works. And one of them is that if you can get whatever financing entity is making your movie to agree to our rating in advance, it has a palpable effect on the screenplay writing process, on the shooting process, on everything, not just about the violence, meaning, uh, simplest way I could put it, if the studio knows they cannot market the movie to people under 16 years of age or 17 years of age, whatever, um, or or kids, effectively, um, then they also aren't going to tell you to put cute critters in the movie, right? They're not going to tell you that scene in the tank that's six and a half minutes long between the first one. It's like one big block I wrote early on between Hugh, like in figuring out the story, that Hugh and Charles scene, the first scene in the movie. I mean, there's no way that movie could survive in a movie that has to entertain 12-year-olds. And the because it's just attention span deficit theater is what movies that have to serve all these age groups are. And it's like the... 
So there's a mil the topics, uh, talking about suicide, talking about grieving, long the, it, a lot of stuff is, is suddenly no one's worried about the script because they know they're not selling the script and they're not making a Mattel promotional deal and they're not making, so all, because all that stuff is off the table once there's in, in the movie. So it's like the, the, so there's just a huge pressure lifted off the movie and all, the only thing we had to tell the studio was that Hugh had to take less dough and I had to make the movie with less dough. Um, then these movies are made. But in a way that was all the freedom of making, uh, however contradictory or odd it seems, uh, to some folks, a kind of adult-themed superhero movie. That was really what was driving us at core. So um, let's talk about the violence and the action because it was brilliant. <laughs> and I'm, what I'm, it was brilliant. It was brilliant. And, and this is, uh, and I'm curious how you handle this because a lot of the times in these kind of uh, Mick movies, they have just disposable violence where you go like that. You could have just taken the action and just and just moved it down the shuffleboard of any other film because it was never. But everything in this is born out of character. So the violence, com I mean, the action comes out of character. What I'm curious about is how much of that was on the page when you wrote the script. And then and then how much is that is actually once you start storyboarding, previsioning and, and it evolves from this what, sitting down with your. Well, it's, your a, it's a combo. I think that the that. What I try and make sure is in the script are two things. One is a, 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 a that you're handing off the action in a way that there is a sense. I think it's like a musical, meaning that there has to be a sense of a story development inside the action, whatever it is, which you need to do at the script level. You can't arrive at previs or with a storyboard artist and start thinking of how your characters are going to change um, in the middle of the the fight but the but um, so that has to be in place and and if anything I think the biggest thing is that you have to think in the same way you need to give space for your actors to do something interesting you have to think about how um, how to set up action on the page that allows an interesting metaphor um, I don't know if this would be make sense, but that the that you're it's it's exactly like I figure what Gene Kelly was doing late at night when, before he would come up with the great sequence, which he'd go like, "Let's build a set that revolves, and Don will dance, you know, we'll dance on the, you know, or let's do let's build these couches and put hinges on them, and, and the three of us will do this, or or let's do a rain sequence, and I'm going to dance in the rain, and I'm going to do this shuffle step through the puddles, meaning there's some architectural sense before they arrive on set or draw pictures that I have, a, I have an angle for how to do something that's a metaphor about life that makes that somehow makes the action more than just punching and kicking and shooting. Um, so for instance, that's how you have um, a sequence where uh, Charles's ability to kind of uh, freeze everybody gets kind of twisted into this kind of horrible mass paralysis and then you have this kind of reverse action sequence in which the hero is murdering the bad guys while they're frozen in place and that but somehow because we're so hungry for something different that feels cool or at least to me because we're just so sick of the other thing which would just be the performa moves of the fight 
So we've actually been the thing that then becomes, and it, it's, it becomes interesting questions about who Logan is and savagery and what you do if your daughter or father were in peril. And I certainly wouldn't sit around and worry about whether it was a fair fight if someone were threatening my father or child. And that I just kill them if they were tied up and I could kill them tied up, I'd kill them tied up. I'd do whatever I had to do to get to my family. So the, so, but that's a quick example of how I think, or like Laura and the reveal of Laura, Scott, Frank and I worked a long time on how, you know, you're gonna, they're gonna arrive in there and then we're gonna cut outside and then you're gonna hear the noise from inside and then Laura will emerge and then I gotta keep the camera far enough away that you don't see it's a guy's head in her hand and then you gotta, and, and we're just playing these cards out um, and there's all these metaphors to me, metaphor might even be the right word, but, but kind of stuff about parenting even in the action, like even uh, Boyd, who plays the guy with the metal hand, uh, Pierce, in the movie, like I love when Laura comes out, and he's like, hi baby, come on, no, no, and then she starts slaughtering people, but that the, so what's interesting, the angle again is not, is like just suddenly the action, the normal set piece or kind of gunfight, okay corral moment is subverted by this weird, like way we talk to children in baby voice and like and so and it's subtle you don't want to go so far that i like it's funny when i label it but you just want enough that it makes the action seem fresh and and i think that's it, it but it's on every level you're working on that and trying to figure that out are you surprised by your ability to execute action i mean you, you didn't start out as an action filmmaker well what's so really weird is i i i mean the total in the uh, my total inspiration to make movies was seeing Star Wars on a camping trip. And like I was, uh, I was supposed to travel Yellowstone Park with my aunt and uncle. We left from Chicago to drive to Yellowstone. And the day before we left, they took us to see Star Wars at, uh, uh, and it changed my life. And I don't remember anything of Yellowstone Park except maybe standing at a payphone near Old Faithful telling my parents they had to see this movie when I get home. And, uh, and, um, and I had been making little movies and puppet shows and magic shows and all this stuff, but the travel into making independent films was almost by way of dreaming from the beginning that I would be making uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind or the movies that really inspired me in my small upstate town, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, Raging Bull, um, uh, 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 I could go on and on, We Know Jaws, um, I mean, the entire kind of 70s canon of movies that um, broke through. Um, and so I actually got a chance in Hollywood when I was very young, making kind of a more commercial short that got me a lot of attention. And I got hired at the studios at 21 and had an overall deal at Disney. And um, that's a long, painful story I wouldn't go into now, but it basically didn't end well. I was way too young and unprepared for the dark sides of this business and the um and ended up kind of on my ass then went back to tried to remember when i was last happy which was in film school went back to new york and then came back again in my 30s having with scripts under my arm having written copland and having made heavy and um and kind of found my way back in but copland as a second movie was a pretty large weird movie you know I'm weird character. I mean, in terms of, I don't fit in a box. I mean, I, I think we actually have this similar similar quality. Is that I think um, I think it's very advantageous for directors in some obvious ways to get put in a box very early. So studios 
um, so people know what to think of you as, um, so press knows how to cover you. Um, and I haven't intentionally defied it for any large reason. And I think your career is similar, but I think that I just make the movies that interest me. And I, and what I feel like so many directors are, have been denied is that when you migrate from genre to genre, you learn. And when you sit in one genre, like I can't tell you how much making Kate and Leopold or identity or, um, helped me with walk the line. I could never explain it. I probably could with a lot of time, but the, <laughs> but it's like that. That's really interesting quality for me, and I I feel like weirdly this movie is like has pieces of all the shit I've done in different places: action, kind of drama, um, family, um, uh, and and tr is kind of a tangled knot of a lot of things I love. That's one of the the thematically the, one of the things that I responded to, and I, I certainly have it in my own film is, is family, fathers and sons. Father and daughter. So was that when you, from the from the inception, the genesis of this with the idea, was that a theme that you wanted to explore in this film? Well, it was this, I was suddenly, yes. I was suddenly freed from a saga. I wasn't adapting a known comic quantity. And I was, um, I mean, I could have been in a sense that I was asked, what should we do? And I kind of went away and I came up with this idea. But what was interesting is I kind of came up with an idea that, pushed most sagas away although we have a, we use a good bit of the look of kind of what some of you would know as old man logan but that i didn't want to make that story I, I first of all i couldn't for a variety of reasons but second of all the tone was so unremittingly dark but i did ask myself like the simple director questions writer questions that you ask like i said what is logan most frightened of because if it's gonna be the last movie what is wolverine most frightened of is it gonna be another supervillain? with so you know a, a character actor du jour color him blue give him contact lenses crazy hair latex armor and flying foot powered whatevers and um, rocket blasters and it's like already i'm i'm with gavin my eyes are rolling up in my head and so no it's not a super villain is it the end of the world well now i could do my riff on how many times we've seen the world end in the last five years and does logan really give a no, I actually think he'd be looking forward to the end of the world. So the, so what is he frightened of? Because that, on a character basis, not a plot basis, would be the most interesting thing to make the movie about. And what he's most frightened of is love. What he's most frightened of is intimacy. What he's most frightened of is dropping his guard or being vulnerable because of a variety of reasons. One, whenever he's done that, the person he loves ends up dead. Um, whenever he's done that, he ends up hurt and alone. And he's had 200 years of that repetitiously, and that can get a guy kind of with some commitment issues. And the, and that was what the movie then became about, an elaborate, uh, uh, obviously I'm trying to deliver on all these other levels, but it's, it's essentially a movie about a guy with a father and a daughter who hasn't come to terms with how much he loves his father and can't, connect or even allow himself to connect with this daughter who has arrived on his doorstep. So talk to me about the girl, uh, Laura. What was her, what's the actress's name? Daphne Keene. And, and how did you find her? And uh, Miracle. I mean, I had like a three-legged stool of this movie, two of which were, you know, cast already and great actors. And the third leg, Scott and I had written the most impossible role. I mean, it, the, I remember the casting breakdown was like between 10 and 12, highly skilled in martial arts or action, um, terrific method actress and bilingual and, and, and Latina. And 
And so you're like, um, and so um, we went uh, South America, London, uh, United States, obviously. Um, there were searches everywhere, um, and I saw a lot of kids. And um, But one day I was working on the script and right here in Hollywood, and uh, I got an email from Priscilla John, who's a casting director, wonderful casting director in uh, London, and she had just gotten emailed this little video made by an actor named Will Keane, um, uh, some of you might, if you watch The Crown, you might know him from that, but he um, he had made a short piece on his daughter playing this role, which, by the way, they weren't even allowed to know was like X-23 or a mini Wolverine because that was top secret, and that could be a whole nother rant I'd go on about how we have to make these movies in like like we're working for the NSA. But the... But the um, but anyway, so she's but she's climbing on their wardrobes and bookshelves and tumbling and landing and saying a few lines and I I it like yeah, I can't explain it but I knew it was her. You just it's just you, I knew we had her and I instantly like Patrick visited me three days later and I put the tape on and he was like, it's just this moment. It's a shock of recognition. It's the cruelest thing to ever tell some actors because it's like when it's right. It's so right. And like, so it's like, how do you explain that? It's so horrible because they're thinking, oh, if I just do this, maybe a little more cockney. What if I wear this hat? And it's like, none of it matters. It's just when the person arrives who is right for the role, they just knock it out of the park. And, and, um. So what did you do? Did you bring her to? I, 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 my first thought was, how do I get Fox to hire her right. without a process? <laughs> right. Because I knew there would be the standard bake-off. Well, you can't just hire one. We need to do tests and blah, blah, blah. And um, so I picked two other kids who were kind of bronze and silver and kind of went. And, and, we, um, and we went to New York. And Hugh was, I don't remember what Hugh was doing at that moment, but we did, the, uh, we did just a set of readings. Um, with me all the time conniving how to make Daphne look awesome. And, uh, and, um, but she was, and, um, and she was all those things on the list and fabulously instinctual young actress. I mean, she just owns it. She owns the, what, what it was I saw on the tape from the beginning is she owns the physicality. I mean, the role is ludicrous on its face that the idea that you would, and this was my own thing was mostly X-23 comic books actually are about kind of a 18, 25 year old, uh, X-23. I did not want that for a variety of reasons, most of which I just did not want the I, I felt like it would feel like one of the CW you know shows with all the young beautiful people or superheroes and the, I just I wanted a daughter I wanted like Paper Moon or the Bad News Bears or I wanted I wanted that I wanted um, I wanted truly a daughter who needs protection not sassy young hot thing in whatever and plus the outfits that X twenty three wears in her later years are just like ludicrous so the um, um, but. Uh, that's the story. She came and she was amazing and she worked her head off and she was, uh, and she taught me a lot, you know, um, uh, about, you know, even when you're really exhausted, sometimes you start talking to a kid, like you just look over here and then you, and she'd be like, what am I feeling? She just asked me what she's feeling or what, and, and then she'd handle it. And, um, really smart kid, real it's, actress. Yeah. It's a great example of, um, you don't need to have, dialogue to be a great actor and you know sometimes you see with actors they want they want words they lines. want lines 
Yeah. You know, it's it's what you do with in between. It's, it's what, what you do, do with him. Yeah. It's and what you do, not what you say. So it's a it's a beautiful performance. No, she's amazing. And yeah, and she and when she speaks, it's so awesome. I yeah. mean, I, I always look forward to watching it with the crowd because it's just like it's just when we were shooting, it was startling because I think most of the crew had gotten used to her as kind of a mute. And then suddenly we, we shot that scene like week three or four, and everyone was like, "Holy sh!" How much mm. how much continuity? Did it, 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 I mean, this rarely ever happens, but it feels like you shot the movie in order. No, it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. I mean, on a on a for the ads and other directors here, it was a the biggest part of the nightmare was that I had to shoot Patrick Stewart out in four weeks, and so. Um, because he had he was a driving the schedule, he was driving the schedule, and so for instance, you know the smelting plant where they're living, and he was never once on that property. Um, he never set foot there. We shot that in the last three weeks. Most of that action, that last, that's in New Mexico. We started in Louisiana, so I had to plan the footage out enough that I had. I mean, you'd think about it; it's like all these shots of him being wheeled out the front of the smelting plant and put in the car. Those are all shot in Louisiana in a parking lot. And um, with just a lot of left-right planning of just how he's going to plug into this sequence um, and drop in. But um, that was the biggest stress. I had to get us to his death by week four. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so we have to wrap this up. Yeah. Um, thank you, everybody. Uh, I just want to say I hope uh, uh, award we just, we're just at, uh, leaving award season. I, I really hope that this film next year during award season is recognized for you, the film, and for thank Hugh Jackman, you, man, That's because that kind. performance is brilliant. Oh, Hugh is incredible in the movie. Yeah, he does an incredible job. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening to this DGA Q&A. Check out past episodes of The Director's Cut by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts or on our website at dga.org slash podcast. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.